Hey, welcome to Black People Die by Suicide to our new set. Um, you've probably noticed that we've had some changes with our set over, you know, the past few months and throughout the episodes. But this is our new home, our new setup, the new aesthetic, as the kids <laughs> say. Um, so we just wanted to film this and let you all know that, you know, the set's going to be consistent. We were just kind of playing around to see what we liked and... This is what we got. Yeah, I, I know. And for me as a person, as a marketing, communications, branding, you know, that's that's my thing. I was like, Lord, I know what those people probably like. What is black? Is white? Is green? Is green? <laughs> what is grass? What is going on, y'all? But no, we really did like listen to your concerns because there were a few DMs that came in that people asked um, about and just offering feedback on how we can improve the podcast so just know that we're always open for feedback so like anything you can send us a dm or you can um send an email to info at black people die by suicide 2.org we always want to improve the podcast and so we're happy that we're this is our our new home we think it looks great shout out to digital empath because they're doing an awesome job so we are uh yeah we're very excited so we just ask that y'all bear with us you know the one of the things that i've learned from this process is being open because i initially remember when we first started the podcast leon would ask questions like do you want this do you want that i'm just i don't know leon <laughs> and so one of the things that i learned is that to start something if you have something that you want to do just start it it does not have to be perfect and you don't you don't have to have it all figured out there are so many things that you will learn along the way and there are as we've been recording and having guests and doing all of the everything related to the podcast I've been learning like okay this is what I like this is what I don't like this is what I want to improve so that is something that this process has also taught me because I can tend to be a bit of a perfectionist. <laughs> Jordan knows she works with me. So, um, so yeah, so we hope that you all enjoy the set. Um, so before we will begin to have our first episode that you will see with this wonderful set will be with the amazing Dr. Rita Walker. She will kick off. So, but for now we have some episodes that were pre-recorded, so I'm just letting y'all know when y'all see this, we putting this out now for y'all so we can address <laughs> the changes right. in the set. Right. But y'all gonna get some white background and some grass, and then once the grass is over, then you gonna get this set. <laughs> yes. Um. We again, like Takia said, we're so open to feedback. Um. Y'all, I'm gonna try to talk louder, Lord. I uh, my mom calls me mouse mouth. Should she say I talk like me, 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 me? Um, so I'm going to try to do better and project if you couldn't hear me. But yeah, so this is the new set. I hope you like the way it looks. I think it looks beautiful. It's aesthetically pleasing. So, yes. So thank you all for bearing with us. Thank you so much for supporting us. We are so grateful. We ask that you continue to support us. Our goal for 2024 is to grow our YouTube channel. Um, it's YouTube is a, is a beast, but we are determined to make sure that our channel continues to grow so that we can get this content out and help change the world. So thank you so much for supporting us, you all.
Hello everyone, this is Jordan, co-host of the Black People Die by Suicide 2 podcast. This episode's format will be a little bit different from our usual. Takiya and I were on a panel discussion with Dr. Linnell Plummer, founder of Onyx Therapy Group, and Dr. Rosalind Dyson, founder of the Trey Dyson Have a Heart Foundation. We teamed up together for a panel discussion on how to best support loved ones who are considering suicide, and we also got into our personal connection with suicide. We hope you all enjoy the information that's being presented. Takiya and I had an awesome time with both Dr. Plummer and Dr. Thyssen. If you would like to connect with Dr. Plummer or Dr. Thyssen, check out the show notes or the description box and their information will be listed and they will be this week's resource. Without further ado, we hope you all enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Your support means so much. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. We are very, very excited. Um, I am looking over here because I have some notes and I just want to make sure I keep us on track. Um, so welcome you all to the Black is Suicidal, um, how to support your loved ones who are experiencing suicidal thoughts. I am Takia, the uh, executive director and co-founder of my new baby, or I should say our baby, <laughs> Black People Die by Suicide 2. We are a new nonprofit that was founded June of this year. And our mission is to normalize the conversation about suicide prevention within the Black community and to provide hope and resources. I am a person with lived experience, so I am a suicide attempt survivor. And I also lost my 13-year-old cousin to suicide. Um, and so I want to give my panelists also the opportunity to introduce themselves. But before we do that, just a few housekeeping things. Um, Geralee, our wonderful secretary of the board, is doing technical assistance. So any questions, she'll be monitoring the chat um, throughout the panel, as well as doing Q&A, helping to feed the questions to all of us. I will be moderating the panel. So, and if during the Q&A, she'll bring it up again, but if you have, you want your questions to be anonymous, then you would send it directly to her um, instead of putting it in the chat. And then if you don't care about that, then um, just put it in the chat, but that's just a heads up. So Geralee will be helping out with technical assistance. Um, and then Brianna will join us shortly because some people may have went to the old link so she is on the old link referring people over here to make sure they come into the main room. And so now I want to give my panelists the opportunity to introduce themselves because I think they'll do a better job at introducing themselves than I can do. I can go. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Uh, my name is Jordan. I am the associate director and co-founder of Black People Die by Suicide 2. Like Zakia said, this is our baby. I'm a person with lived experience. I've been hospitalized with suicidal ideation on multiple occasions. Fun fact, if you didn't know this already, but that's actually where Takia and I met. Um, that was five years ago and we've been friends ever since. So we're really excited to start this organization to support other people who are um, currently experiencing struggles with their own mental health. 
So I thank you all for being here. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your support. Oh, I, I realized I was on mute. <laughs> we forgot to tell them as well. We are also the co-hosts and the producers of the podcast, Black People Die by Suicide 2 as well. So podcast available on all platforms and we're working on growing our YouTube. So if you want to watch video, you can go there too. So those are our, our, our babies. Who would, would like, you like to go me? next? Dr. Plummer? Sure, sure I, ahead, can, I can go. So good evening, everyone. Um, again, my name is Dr. Linnell Plummer. I am the CEO of Onyx Therapy Group, which is a mental health company headquartered here in Washington, D.C., with offices across the nation. Super proud of the work that we get to do um, around mental health, I guess, across the nation and across the world, too. We're in South Africa. So super excited about that. I am going to ask that you guys bear with me today. A sister guy hit with COVID, but I was like, I am showing up because this is a conversation that we need to participate in, we need to advocate for, we need to talk about. Um, so I might be a little breathy, so just bear with me during this process as well. So the topic is extremely important to me. I lost my grandmother by suicide um, in 1999. She was my favorite girl. She still is, right, in spirit form. So I do believe that um, that she still rocks and rolls with me, but I would have preferred for her to stay in, in the flesh for a tad bit longer, a lot longer, right? So the conversation is important um, through either the genetic process or uh, and chemical exchanges, our environment and learned behavior, I too had uh, at different points in my life uh, considered suicide, had suicidal ideations, um, specifically uh, because I, I thought that's what it was, right? I didn't have, I didn't think I had options. I didn't know. And when we don't know, we do what we think we do know, right? So um, I'm excited to be able to talk about this conversation with you all today. Um, and with our audience as well. And uh, just just slow down with me a little bit. When I get a little breathy, I get excited and passionate about the work I get to do, but I'm here showing up so we can advocate and continue to advocate for our Black people who, um, who want more options, who need more options, and their families who are also dealing with the fact that some people have made decisions and acted upon those already. Thank you again. Good evening, everyone. My name is Dr. Rosalind Thyssen. I'm a registered nurse. I'm also a um, college professor at Southern University, and I'm the executive director and founder of the Trey Thyssen Have a Heart Foundation. It was actually founded after the death of my 13-year-old son, Trey. His name is Trey. His hearts go back, which is why I have my heart glasses. Um, and actually, today is the four-year angelversary. So woke up to that this morning, but it's a very important conversation. I feel like I owe it to Trey and other young Black youth like Trey to continue um, his legacy of love and just to bring more awareness, not just awareness, but also prevention to both bullying and also suicide. So thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much to my wonderful panelists for introducing yourselves. And um, I'm sending you a big hug, Rosalind, for today. I know today um, can be can be challenging. So just sending you lots of virtual love.
Um, so if you all did not know, this is um, in honor of Mental Illness Awareness Week, which is actually October 1st to the 7th. We've decided to host this webinar in partnership with Onyx Therapy Group. Um, Dr. Plum already gave you her spiel, so y'all should check out their website. Dr. Plum, if you can put it in the chat when you get a moment, because they have tons of Black clinicians. That website is amazing. You just see all these Black people, and they all mental health professionals. So I get really excited when I visit that website. My therapist told me about Dr. Plummer, which told me about Onyx, and I'm always referring people because people are often asking me, is my therapist taking any more clients? She's not, but I, Dr. Plummer can probably vouch that they're probably taking some clients. <laughs> we are absolutely, we are a company that responds to uh, demand. So we just hired uh, quite a few new counselors and uh, both on the school-based side and the private practice side to work with the community. So absolutely, we are taking new clients and we increased our insurance panels too. So what you got, we got, we gonna cover. Okay. All right. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so before we dive into the panel, I got, like I said, my notes over here, just wanted to share some stats as it relates to suicide. Um, Overall, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death within the United States, but it's actually the second leading cause of death for ages 10 to 24. And black um, suicide among black males 10 to 19 years old have actually increased by 60%. And emergency room visits for suicidal thoughts and um, self-injury, self they're actually on the rise as it relates to black girls. And in 2020, suicide was the leading cause of death for Black girls between the ages of 12 to 14. And it has been, um, as I've stated, just increasing, which is why Jordan and myself created this organization because we really want to combat suicide because suicide is preventable. And so the first step is being able to have these conversations so that we can normalize the conversation and then also find out what are the signs and what do we do to support um, everyone. So I'm trying to figure out, I think I'm gonna start and throw it with um, Rosalind first to give you an um, opportunity to talk about Trey and what he was like. And if you happen and then kind of going into, if you recognize any signs or anything. Okay, so Trey, I had five kids. Trey was my second born. He's but he was my baby boy. And like I said, his name is Trey. It's hard spelled backwards. So whatever you think of hearts, you think of you know, loving, caring, compassionate, and that's everything that he was. He was very artistic. So he loved the visual arts. He was an artist. He um he played the violin and the cello. He just he was just a lover of life. He loved to serve. He loved community service. He loved people. But Trey was also a victim of bullying by his peers at school. And unfortunately, his concerns for, you know, for the bullying that he experienced were kind of um, swept under the rug. They were overlooked because of how he looked. So Trey was a Black male. And um, unfortunately, some Times people feel like black males don't have feelings, black males can't be bullied. And so 
after his reports and you know my reports and speaking with administration, the bullying just got worse because it was never um, really addressed. And um, the major the major incident that happened was on September 27th, which was my oldest son's birthday. So his birthday is always linked to what happened to Trey at school. Um, and then a few days later on October 3rd, we woke up six o'clock in the morning and my oldest son had found that Trey had taken his life right before it was time to get on the bus. Um, came as a shock. You know, I'm a registered nurse. I teach, you know, in the nursing school. So we talk about suicide and suicide awareness month had just ended. So we were just having these conversations and um, Trey was very active in these conversations as all my kids are. So it was just a big shock that we woke up to find that he was no longer here with us. He um, he never stopped smiling. He never became withdrawn. He never talked about um, wanting to take his life. Now, did was he upset about the bullying? Yes, who wouldn't be? But we never thought that he would take his life. He didn't leave a note. He didn't um, do the quote unquote usual things like start giving things away or changing his behavior. He um, he just woke up that morning and I guess he felt like just hopelessness and just, just hopelessness and he's no longer here with us. Thank you so much for sharing that. And you spoke on a few things that I think will also give Dr. Plummer the opportunity to speak to. But a lot of times people think like there will be signs. And while generally, yes, that is the case. But um, Dr. Plummer would like you to give um, an opportunity to, to kind of dive into what are some of those signs that people um, generally um, imply that they're um, considering suicide? Absolutely. Excuse me. And again, my condolences, um, Rosalind. So like Rosalind mentioned, some, some people show signs, right? Some people indicate that this is, uh, this is an option for them, but that's not the case with all people because we are uh, emotional beings, right? And like Rosalind mentioned, one of the primary uh, emotions that's present when a person has suicidal ideation is hopelessness. And as, as emotions come, they are fleeting. They, they don't always stay there, right? And so a person may feel hopeless one day and, and not hopeless the next day or hopeless for three hours and then maybe something happens and they don't feel it anymore. Uh, and so it really is a matter of what happens when a person feels hopeless. Um, and if in that moment of feeling hopeless, in that time, in that state of feeling hopeless, uh, will they make an action around suicide? Uh, and, and what we find in our research is, is yes, they will. It, we don't have a whole lot of research. We only have research on the people who have attempted a suicidal um, action and, and did not was and did not pass away. So, because we can't go back and get data on people who have already passed, right? Um, we get information from their parents and from their family members, but that's secondhand. So it's not always the purest of data. For those who have attempted suicide and and did not pass away, um, some of the 
the symptoms that they will have is what looks like depression. Um, and keep in mind that depression looks different in certain populations than it did in others. I'm gonna pause right there and talk about that. So what we work with in terms of our DSM, which is our Diagnostic Statistical Manual, is based off of diagnosis, based off of research, specific research populations. Uh, in, in most of those diagnoses, Black people were not part of the research body, right? And so what the symptoms of depression looks like or what the symptoms of trauma looks like or what the symptoms of generalized anxiety look like may not be what it looks like in Black people because we were never part of the original research study, right? But what we find with Black people, especially Black women, is that when they are experiencing some form of depression, they actually overwork instead of underwork. They are not going to find themselves laying in bed um, the way that we may find with other populations. Instead, they're going to work and work it out, right? Because that's the cultural response. Work it out. Go to God you know, try to spend time with these people. And so we don't see the same levels of isolation. So that's present for all of the disorders in the DSM. With that being said, what we generally know about suicidal ideations is that people are showing signs of depression, they're showing signs of anxiety, they are absolutely experiencing hopelessness at um, at higher rates than they ever have before. Um, at this time, in terms of actions, we may see them, again, overworking or underworking. We may see them withdrawing from people, or we may see them actually engaging with more people, but being quiet, right? So they're outside more, but they're not talking as much and being uh, having intimate conversations with people in the same way. Yes, historically, we have seen that people will give things away, um, or that people will, you know, delegate certain tasks. We see that they say things like, I'm not feeling well, or this doesn't feel good. There are generally cries for help. And these are not for the, the high incidence of hopelessness per se. These are when people are slowly walking into a suicidal ideation, as opposed to an impulsive suicidal attempt. Those are two different things. And so we are, we are seeing a range of things. So what I'm saying is, yes, there are signs and yes, there are symptoms, but that is not it. So don't look at people and be like, well, they didn't do this and they didn't do that. So they must be okay. Or they did do this and they did do that. So they must have suicidal ideation. What we know is that many people who have attempted suicide and they come back and they tell us, what they are longing for more is a sense of belonging and closeness and um, acceptance in who they are. And that comes through interpersonal relationships. That comes from identifying a person's particular need. That comes from working with them and being with them in, in ways that sometimes feel overwhelming for us. And that's sometimes why family members feel guilty after a person has committed suicide or have died by suicide rather because they think they didn't show up for a person that's not necessarily the case right but understand that to, to have a greater idea of if a person is dealing with suicidal ideations as a walk-in not as an impulsive action but what what really needs to happen is more conversation right more sense of togetherness and for some people, because everybody doesn't communicate verbally, some people just need physical closeness, right? Like they need somebody with them. They need somebody holding their hands because that also changes 
that changes our brain, right? When we have this, this touch, and that's a sensory issue. That's not what, why you asked me to come here today. Um, but that what I am saying in short is there are signs, there are symptoms, and then there are other things that we wouldn't pick up on regularly. So that is why it's important that if people are seemingly often who you have known them to be, get them into therapy, help them into that therapeutic process, consider attending therapy with them in the very beginning, giving them a soft handoff to a therapist and things like that as well. We can't talk about a client with somebody that they haven't given consent to, but you can you can slow walk them right into this into this relationship. Thank you so much, Dr. Plummer. You said a lot and my mind was kind of going um, as someone who, so I'm very transparent in saying that I actually started struggling with suicidal thoughts at 11 years old in middle school. I didn't have the terminology what suicide was at the time. I just knew I thought about ways of ending my life and I didn't want to be here. And I just knew for me, I wanted the pain to stop. Like the mental anguish that I was Feeling. I just didn't want to feel it anymore. I don't think it was necessarily that I wanted to die back then, but I think, well, that was the reason why I wanted to die. I think that was a lot of what it was for me. And in my early 20s, when I had the attempt, I had texted a friend and told her, you know, it would be so much better if I wasn't here. And at that point, she went into action and I found myself in the hospital. Um, and that's really kind of what, you know, put me in the space of realizing like, okay, something is wrong a lot of times i know like i'll let jordan speak to this too like in the black community we're like suicide and mental health like that's a white people thing so since i'm not what i was told white and or rich not white definitely not rich so i was like then it can't be me because i'm a person that's super goal oriented like you know and i just felt like i'm too i'm like I had too much education. I'm like, I went to Howard, I went to Georgetown and I'm trying to get, you know, I'm in the beginning stages of my career and I'm trying to do all this stuff. And I just thought somehow my educational background and me being super driven was supposed to exempt me from uh, mental health challenges. And I share that to say, people can look like they're okay and they're not okay. You People would look at my accolades, like Takia has done all of this, but no one ever knew until I sent that text to that friend. So that goes to Rosalind and Dr. Plummer's point that sometimes there are signs, people started noticing certain things, but I also said, I don't wanna be here. And I already had taken substances and was hoping like, oh, I'll just kind of go in my sleep. And I was just hoping that I would die in my sleep, but thank God that the, it did not work. And um, I do want to bring attention to, I don't know if y'all caught this, what Dr. Plummer did, she changed her language. She first, she said, commit suicide. And she said, oh, I'm sorry. I mean, die by suicide. And for those of you who don't know, this was um, some knowledge that was dropped on me by a um, psychiatrist. We're really working to um, move away from the language um, using committed suicide. That's why even the name of our organization is Die by Suicide for many reasons, but one is we don't want to place blame on individuals who are struggling. Oftentimes we use the word like commit a crime or commit a sin, and it kind of implies wrongdoing. People with mental health challenges, we are already dealing with, some of us dealing with guilt, dealing with shame. We would not say that a person with asthma or with cancer was committed to their death. 
And that also implies that we have more empathy for people with physical health conditions versus mental health conditions. So the same level of empathy that we give to those with cancer and heart disease, et cetera, is the same level of compassion and empathy that we want to give to those who struggle with suicidal thoughts. So just take this as an educational and teachable moment that it is died by suicide or that person attempted suicide or passed away or they are suicide attempt survivor. We really want to work to remove the word committed from the, when we, in reference to suicide. Um, Jordan, I would like to give you an opportunity to speak about um, your lived experience in terms of, I know you kind of talked about it a little bit in the beginning, but just kind of like what got you to that point and the challenges that you felt like if you felt like you could speak up or if you felt like you had to keep it on the inside, just kind of sharing a little bit more about your story. Sure. So um, I have a diagnosis of major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder and PTSD. And all of my traumatic events occurred um, when I was a youth with the uh, I guess the most severe one happening is like right after I turned 18. And, you know, for the most part, my childhood was really good. I grew up here in Maryland with my parents and my brother. And once I got to about first or second grade, things just kind of changed. Um, my parents started to argue a lot. And as I got a little bit older, I started to experience some unwanted um sexual contact from my father. And throughout all of that, I was able to, like, when I tell you I was a good student, I made straight A's several times. I was part of clubs and sports. No one outside of the home would have suspected a thing. I did have an incident when I was in middle school where I just had this overwhelming anxiety and it kind of manifested itself as social anxiety. And I went to talk to a guidance counselor about it, but they just kind of waved me off. Um, so my family is very, Jordan, there's nothing wrong with you. Like I wasn't allowed to say that I didn't feel good about something or that I felt sick or sad. We're very, you need to dust it off and keep it pushing. Um, I don't, I won't fault my family for it. I think that's just the generation that my parents sort of grew up in. And again, I was holding it together really, really well up until right after I graduated from high school. And I graduated in May. Two weeks later, my father ended up passing away from lung cancer. And it was very, very hard for me because in April, I think that's when he stopped working and went on short-term disability. And from April to the middle of June, when he passed away, my father deteriorated to basically like a skeleton. And it was very, very hard for me to watch. But I didn't really have time to dwell on it because I ended up going to college in Atlanta in August. And I guess it was sort of out of sight, out of mind. Um, I knew that I had to keep it pushing because that's what my parents told me I needed to do. So I did well in undergrad up until my very last year, um, I started to notice some, some behaviors that were, that were not healthy at that time. So this was around like summer 2012. And I was binge eating to like cope with my feeling. 
Um, I was isolated a lot. I had family members in South Carolina that I would go to see all the time. It was only about a two hour drive for me, but slowly over time, my visits to South Carolina got fewer and fewer and fewer. And I started to see a therapist um, over the summer, but I think I only went to her maybe twice. At the time I was on my mother's insurance and the copay to see this therapist was $85 a pop and I just didn't have it. Um, so I stopped seeing her. This was like the middle of July, 2012. And then once school started back up the next month, I started to see a um, psychologist and a psychiatrist at school. And, you know, all throughout that, I was trying to just go to school. I knew I had to graduate. Didn't, I could not afford to extend my schooling any longer. I needed to finish and I needed to get back home to Maryland. And there was this night where I was in my apartment by myself and I just wanted to die. So I went to the butcher block and I got a knife and I was going to cut myself, slit my wrist. But for whatever reason, I didn't do it. And I went to the um, counseling center the next day because I had an appointment and I told them about it. And that was how I got hospitalized the first time. They, it's so funny because the way they presented it to me about going to the hospital, it was like they were giving me a choice. So I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. You know, I'll come back tomorrow. Um, I'll pack a bag and I'll go to the hospital like first thing in the morning. And my psychologist looked at me and she was like, no, you're not. And I was like, wait, what happened? So they, I ended up in the back of a squad car um, taken to the inpatient psychiatric unit. Um, I did that for, I was inpatient for about 72 hours. And then I did the partial hospitalization program, which is where you go to the hospital, usually Monday through Friday um, from about 9 o'clock to about three thirty-four. So I did that for about five weeks. Um, and it's so funny, they actually allowed me to continue to go to school while I was in the hospital. So I would go to the hospital on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and I would go to the hospital on Thursday, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so I ended up graduating from the hospital program in November and then December. I ended up graduating with my bachelor's and I came back home to Maryland. So I was able to still accomplish my goal despite the extreme distress that I was in at that time. Um, prior to that though, I will say it was a black woman, bless her heart, wherever she is, who was the person, who, complete stranger. It was a black woman who actually noticed that something was wrong with me. I remember um, I was going to school I lived north of Atlanta at the time, so I took the MARTA train to get into downtown. And I was sitting on the train, had my book bag on my lap, waiting for the train to take off. As far as I knew, I was sitting there minding my business and everything was cool. This woman gets on the train and she sits in like the seat um, next to me to the left. And I just remember her tapping my knee and I looked over at her and she had this look of concern on her face. And she said, are you okay? And I was like, um, yeah, I'm fine. She didn't believe me. Cause she looked at me and she said, no, no, no. 
are you okay? And I kind of hesitated and I told her I was fine and I could tell she didn't believe me. And I kid you not, I, I held my book bag close to my chest and I turned myself toward the, um, the window and I cried the entire ride all the way down to Atlanta. Because up until that point, I was always able to mask what was going on with me. No one would have suspected a thing, as I said earlier. Um, always had good grades, was always involved in clubs and sports. And for the first time, somebody actually saw through that completely. And somebody actually saw that something was wrong with me. And yeah, it wasn't too long after that, maybe about a week or two after that, that I ended up in the hospital. Um, so yeah, you know, my family, even now, they're not very, um, they don't really understand mental health, but they're coming along, especially my mother. Um, but I just thank that, that lady for recognizing that I wasn't okay, because that really brought to my attention that I wasn't doing as well as I thought I was, because I honestly, I honestly thought no one would have suspected a thing still. Thank you, Jordan, for sharing that. Um, and just kind of going into the, I guess, the meat, I, it's funny, I was gonna say meat and potatoes, but it's like, I'm a vegan, but y'all get what I'm trying to say <laughs> to get into the meat and potatoes of things. Um, when we talk about how to help people, and I think when a loved one is struggling with suicidal thoughts, and I'm gonna give my panelists this opportunity to share as well, the biggest thing that we can really do, one thing is asking them, are you thinking about killing yourself? Are you thinking about suicide? We do not want to say think about hurting yourself. Hurting is not, it's, it's not direct enough. Hurting could be pinching, burning, pulling of the hair. So yes, it is very hard to say, are you thinking about killing yourself? Are you thinking about suicide? But that's the, that's the way to get the answer. And also, you're not going to put the thought in the person's head. If y'all, we already thinking about it. You're not, you're not putting the thought in there. It's either you're thinking about it or you're not thinking about it. Um, and then I think also to speak to that is listening non-judgmentally. A lot of times, and you know, I have been guilty of it too until I've become educated. <laughs> um, a lot of times we want to be like, oh, you have this nice house or you have this great relationship as if you have this college degree, you have this type of corporate job and you sit in the C-suite or whatever, you're a professor, whatever it can be as if that thing or you're a parent as if that thing is supposed to make them want to stay. And what we end up doing is projecting because that may be enough for you not to consider suicide, but that doesn't mean that that's enough for them. So listening non-judgmentally without judgment or, you know, why would you want to do that? Or that's dumb, or you just need to pray about it. That's, that's being judgmental. And so ultimately a person will shut down. So I would like um, Rosalind to, you know, kind of give an opportunity to kind of speak from your experience. Um, if, you know, what do you feel like people can do specifically to help children? I think, um, um, one big one big thing you said um, was listening non-judgmentally. So one thing that we do in our foundation, you know, Trey was 13 when he died. 
he died October 3rd. 10 plus 3 is 13. And you know, 13 is considered such an unlucky number. But I just knew that there had to be some type of purpose in his life. I don't want to say his death, his life. There was purpose in his life. So we started the 13-minute challenge. And that's where we have the 13th of the month, every month. And, you know, that's just a start. It doesn't have to be one day a month, but it's a start. But we have adults to sit and listen to a child, just talk to them for 13 uninterrupted minutes. That means turning your phone off, not sending an email, not multitasking. You know, we, we're just so busy. We get caught up in the hustle and bustle of life. And sometimes those youth pick up on that. They're like, okay, you're not listening. All right, so we so for 13 uninterrupted minutes, let them have the floor, let them talk. And again, listening and listening non-judgmentally and being prepared to let them, you know, lead the conversation. There's a lot of times when, you know, adults, just people in general, we want to give advice. We want to tell them what they should be doing, what they should be doing, what they should be thinking, what you should be thinking, and just listen. And again, if someone is coming to you and they're they trust you enough to share their feelings. They trust you enough to say, I am not okay. I cannot do this. We should not say things like, oh, yes, you can. They just told you that they couldn't. And that's one quick way. I know specifically for me, when my son died, grief, grief is another, that's a bad boy. Grief is a bad boy and it sneaks up on you. Yesterday was horrible for me. And I, I had to tell people, you know, I cannot, and I teach. So I have to be in front of hundreds of students. And I told them, I can't do it today. And the first thing somebody told me, yes, you did. You're so strong. And that just instantly made me shut down because you're not listening me to me. You're not hearing me. You're not validating me. So I think um, one of the first things we can do is listen and listen non-judgmentally and allowing them to lead that conversation. Thank you so much. So we we heard asking directly, listening non-judgmentally, validating. Those are things that are super important. And listening non-judgmentally is a skill. And if you want to learn how to do that, I suggest taking mental health first aid because there's an entire part on listening non-judgmentally. Um, but thank you so much for sharing that. And I think just because, you know, for black and black parents, y'all, you know, black parents are amazing. But a lot of times I'm going to let Jordan speak to this. I see her hand is up. Sometimes black parents, you know, I'm trying to think of a, the best way to say this is that children are sometimes minimized. It's you don't have bills. Talk to me when you like when you have adult problems, but they're not adults. And a lot of times black parents will diminish what children are going through and then that makes them shut down. So as Rosalind talked about, like she needs to be validated. Children also, you know, of course they need to be validated and that's super important uh, because if we don't do that, then they won't come to you. And then you will say like, oh, tell me, you know, if you ever need to talk, let me know what you need. But when they came to you, you told them you don't have bills, you don't have debt. Talk to me when you got a car note, like you, you, you can't have it. you either want them to come to you or you don't want them to come to you. And I know that can be a very hard pill to swallow for some parents, but it's true. And a lot of kids won't come because of things like that. Yes, Jordan. And then you can tag Dr. Plummer after you. Sure. Yes. I was going to say the same thing. Children, 
we tend to dismiss their experiences, but so for example, if you have a teenager who experienced their first love and then they broke up and they say, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And we think as adults, like that's so dramatic. You'll, you know, uh, live on to love again. But for that child, that's the only experience and reference that they have. They haven't lived long enough to experience, I guess, enough of life to refute that. So that probably is one of the most painful things that they've experienced. So I think I love what you're doing, um, Dr. Dyson, with your organization, with the 13 minutes, because if you give children the opportunity to speak candidly about what's going on with them um, and also listen non-judgmentally, it just allow it opens the door for them to feel comfortable to come to you with any problems or issues that they may be having. And sometimes with suicide prevention, it could be as simple as just having an ear to listen to. I know I wish I had someone to talk to or I wish someone had asked me, um, hey, Jordan, are you okay? Are you thinking about suicide? I would have felt so relieved to just have, be able to get that out and have an outlet and know that someone cared about me. So I think we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss the problems of children because they may be little problems to us, they're big problems to them because children have lives too. Yes, and yes, yes, Jordan. We always talk about this. I'm glad you yeah. said that. Before <laughs> Dr. Plummer jumps in, I want you to explain something because I think you always do a great job at talking about the difference between passive versus active suicidal mm. thoughts and how one mm. might handle one versus the other. Yeah, so um, my understanding of passive versus active suicidal thoughts Passive thoughts tend to be things like, um, I wish I wasn't here anymore, or I wish that I could go to sleep and not wake up, or my family is much better off without me. So there are thoughts that, you know, someone um, may not want to be here anymore, but there really isn't like a plan behind it. With active suicidal thoughts, um, there tends to be a little bit more, again, planning behind it. So it's my understanding, and Dr. Plummer, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that when someone is being assessed for suicidal thoughts, um, clinicians are typically looking for plan, means, and intent. So does the person have a plan formulated as to how they want to end their life? Um, do they have the means to go through with that plan? So if they're considering taking medications, do they have access to medications at home? Do they have access to a firearm, et cetera? And then the intention, um, you know, how, this is that question, you know, are you, do you think you'll be able to keep yourself um, safe if you do leave? Or, you know, when are you planning to go through with this? Um, so active suicidal thoughts have a little bit more planning behind them as opposed to just the thought of, because I know I, I most of my thoughts have been passive. Um, I just wish I could go to sleep and not wake up. So that's my understanding of the difference between the two. Thank you, Jordan. And I'm glad you brought that up just because I always talk about how Jordan has been often my go-to person. Um, I'm someone who I often say where I struck, still struggle with uh, chronic suicidal ideation. Um, it's, August, it's October, sorry. <laughs> Just in August, you know, I was struggling um, with thoughts and they were active. And so oftentimes when I do find myself struggling, 
uh, Jordan is often that person. So at least having one person and Jordan will often ask me, is it active or is it passive? Because that helps us to determine a safety plan and what that should look like. Um, and a lot of times people think like, oh my gosh, they said they, they wish they could go to sleep and not wake up. Well, de depending, every person needs something differently. But I know a lot of times for me, it has been, I just need a space to talk about it. I'm not going to actually act, but I just need to get it out. And a lot of times people freak out, but there are instances where, of course, of people, people have, um, they plan to carry out a plan, but there are also a lot of instances where people just need safe spaces to talk. Um, Dr. Plummer, I'm going to let you speak um, and then also speak about if you can speak to safety planning as well. Listen, y'all know I'm a therapist. I got about five, six post-it notes right here. I'm going to cover what I could cover, right? I'm like, wait, hold on. We got to talk about this mask. We got to talk about these solutions. We got to talk about these children versus these those these systems that put us in these places in the first place, right? Especially when we're talking about Black people, our rates are steadily increasing because of some of these systems that are in place. When you have parents that have to work more hours to put food on the table, they can't, they're not available to listen to their kids, right? They get it, And then the parents are blaming themselves. I didn't even know. I didn't, I, what happened? Since I get it, you was working, right? Because at that moment, it was more important to put this spaghetti on the plate, right? Like, let's talk about what is real here too, because otherwise people, parents, family, they're blaming themselves. Let's talk about these systems where the classes are overcrowded. And so a teacher can't see that a child is saying that they're struggling. They're trying to get you to understand this math problem so that they don't lose their job. Because they also got to feed their kids, right? Like, so when we talk about suicide and we talk about Black people by suicide, we can't talk about it in isolation. We have to talk about the systems that are in here too. And 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 while this is not political, we got to be paying attention to these politics and we have to be voting because there is a direct correlation to what is happening in our systems and the implications that it's having on our children and on us as Black people. Again, y'all like that. That ain't why we brought you here, Dr. Plummer. Okay, I got it. Right, cool. Sure, got it. But but you didn't invite me, right? All right. The other piece was, um, Jordan, when you were talking about the mask, you had a mask, right? Sis, sis was on the, on the train with you and she said, you're not right. That wasn't her that was seeing you. That was her spirit talking to yours, right? And so there was something else that was in that, that that's something special about the blackness that we have, the spirits that are with us. Um, the ancestors that ride alongside us. And sometimes the pain is so big that we can't even hear our own intuition. We can't even hear our ancestors talking to us. And that's okay. That's okay. Because somebody maybe can, right? Um, but that mask also is not uncommon for Black people. It's actually a learned coping mechanism. We are taught from young ages, don't let nobody see how you really feel. Because if they do, they're going to manipulate you, right? Don't let anybody know your business. Because if they do, they're going to take you away from us. We're going to have issues in our family if you do that, right? And so when we have these folks that are like, I did my best to try to tell people, but I had to keep on pushing. I had to keep on going. That goes back to what I said Black women do what Black people do, right? Because that is how we've been learned. That's how we've been socialized. That is what our systems have told us that we have to do in order to survive, except we're not surviving with that mask, right? Like we are literally dying with a mask on, 
right? And then everybody is is in pain and they're they're shocked. So in on that particular point, what I want anybody who's listening, either live or later, to consider is what have you learned about mask and is it working for you? And if it's not, you need to get right on over here to therapy, right? Like you need, we're ready for you because I can tell you from my own lived experience and from my research, those masks don't actually help us. They don't help us. And if you are raising your child to put a mask on, it's probably not helping them either, right? We got to break those generational cycles also. Um, Dr. Rosalind says something, everything I, she said, I agree with 100%. But this other idea of like, you know, the question was to her around children, what what are what needs to happen with children, right? And the fact of the matter is that age doesn't mean that you know more. So the solution that she gave for children is the same solution that comes with adults. Just because we get older doesn't mean that we have more wisdom and more experience. I know y'all have met some 60 year olds and 70 year olds and y'all like, what is wrong with you? You, you ain't, it ain't clicking. Right. And it's because growing older doesn't make you wiser, right? Experiences make you wiser. Engagements, interactions, having conversations, considering things makes you wiser. So children say things like, I just want to lay down and go to sleep and not wake up. But adults say those things too. And children say, I want a way out of this, but adults say those things too. The thing is, is if a child says it, we may dismiss them or we may pay attention a little faster. But if an adult says it, we generally dismiss them. Girl, you got that. You're going to get it together. You better pray on that. You better do this. You better do that. They said they ain't got it. Ain't that what you said, Dr. Rosalind? They, I don't got it, right? I don't got it. Don't try to make me have it because I don't have it. So the point that I'm making there is that just because a person is an adult, they are over 18, over 21, over 25. If they say they don't have it, they don't have it. Respect that they don't have it. If they say anything that sounds passive or active in suicide, then pay attention to it in that moment, right? Because again, age doesn't make you wise. Age doesn't mean that you have better coping skills. It doesn't mean that you have better protective factors. It just means that you have more birthdays than somebody else, okay? Um, and so I know you had a question in there for me, right? What was my question? Because I got on, I got onto my topic. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I, I, I told I told y'all I got COVID. <laughs> It's okay. I was letting you run on your soapbox and I wanted you because I was here for it. Okay. That's why we <laughs> asked Honest Therapy to be a part of this. Okay. Um, I asked you to speak to um, safety planning. Right. So safety planning goes into play. So uh, the other, the question that came right before that, I believe Jordan asked me if, if she had described active, um, active, ideations versus passive ideations correctly? And the answer is yes, right? So we're generally looking to see if there is a plan of action. And again, to your point that you made before, Takiya, folks don't need to be afraid to ask if there's a plan because if there is a plan, it's a plan and it was not initiated by you, right? That was initiated by somebody's independent thoughts. So do not be afraid to ask. But passive meaning I don't have an actual plan yet, right? And, and active meaning I do have a plan and I'm just waiting for the time to carry it out. 
And so we want to be able to make sure that we understand the difference, but in all situations, we need to respond the same in that immediate support is necessary. So because remember what we talked about in the beginning, hopelessness is one of those very key emotional factors. So a person can go from a passive plan to an active plan within moments, right? So it doesn't mean that within days, they're not going to come back and be like, yo, that passive plan is now active. That's not how it works, right? So we need to respond the same way. When when it there's a there's different research around what a safety plan looks like and if they're actually effective, right? Some research says that safety plans are actually effective, but some research, um, even especially with Black folks, it, it says that safety plans are not necessarily effective. What is more effective is the communal aspect of it, where we need people to lean in a little bit more. So generally, safety plans are defined as, you know, if I have this particular thought and I have this particular uh, opportunity, right, because I may I may choose a various opportunities to, to engage in this suicidal ideation, what will I do next? So if I think this, this is what my next step should be. If I think that, that is what my next step should be. If I think this, this is what my next step should be. The reason that that becomes controversial and problematic is because a thought can get distorted in a moment and a person does not necessarily engage in their safety plan. I'm not quite sure if that's where you wanted me to go to Kia Taki might be texting me on the side like, girl, that's not the plan. That wasn't the plan. Um, but the truth of the matter is, based off of my lived experience and my professional experience, the plan that should be in place is, is people leaning in on you. So the reason that some of the inpatient, many of the inpatient treatments work is because you have more people asking questions and paying attention. You have more people that are in that space with you, as opposed to those moments where you're alone. So it doesn't decrease... Uh, having a plan doesn't always decrease the possibility of a suicidal attempt. It makes us who are not feeling the suicidal ideation feel better, but it doesn't always help the person who is suicidal. So again, while that may not have been the approach or the answer that we were looking for here, my solution instead is that when a person has identified that they have any sort of suicidal ideation, whether it's passive or active, that is where we need to lean in more. Do not expect that person to figure it out by themselves. No matter if they are the CEO of a company, the president of the United States, a scholar, teacher, don't do that, right? Lean in. These are where we need those conversations frequently. We need those check-ins. We need a, hey, how you doing? We need a, I'm coming by to see you this afternoon. It's a, hey, let's go take a walk. It is all about that interpersonal um, converse, that interpersonal connection while also doing therapy, hand walking them into resources. And in some situations, it's about a, it's about a chemical um, rebalance as well. We find that many Black women are dealing with um, uh, PMDD, that premenstrual uh, disorder, right? And, and what that means is that right uh, about a week or so right before their cycle, they get a chemical uptick while also having another chemical down and it throws the the mind off so bad that it throws excuse me the brain off so bad 
that it ends up throwing off the mind. Remember, the brain is the actual organ. The mind is the thoughts and feelings that come with that, right? So it throws the brain off, which subsequently throws the mind off. And that's when we see a lot of suicidal ideation happening with women, especially those who have PMDD. Uh, similarly, this is what we see with women who commit commit crimes, right? It usually happens right in that time, right before their cycle, because the chemicals are off. That doesn't exclude our guys. They have a range of chemicals too, um, but system systemically, we haven't studied them, right? That's a whole nother thing. I'm getting too far off. Again. But uh, the, the point that I'm making is that there should be a, a lean in on, on interaction. There should be a lean in on physical touch and engagement. Um, and there should be more conversations and there should be a slow walk into resources, not a slow walk, a steady walk into resources. And there should also be the consideration of uh, medication, even if it's short term. Yes, you you did fantastic, Dr. Plummer. OK, like I co-sign it all. So <laughs> I, I, I'm here for it. OK, this is Dr. I was like, like, girl, what she wait, wait, what she asking me, girl, because girl, I ain't going to say what the they tell me. <laughs> Listen, they don't, them safety plans, we know, we know. All right. <laughs> I'm so glad you talked about that, Dr. Plummer. So I am a huge, and Jordan knows, one of the things for me when I am struggle, struggling, so I live with bipolar disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. And my biggest thing, like my love language is quality time. I, so I overall, I love being around people, but when I am struggling and I'm starting to isolate, even though I don't want to be around people, that is the time like I need my support system to rally behind me. So all I have to do is text Jordan in an hour. She already at my house. So like I, when I'm struggling, like when Dr. Plummer talked about that lean in is like that makes me feel so safe and secure during that time. I cannot stress that enough. And one of the things that causes causes me the most distress is when I feel like I can't get that physical presence. Like, I'm not saying I'm not appreciative of a text message because I don't want to make anyone feel like, like, oh, well, at least I reached out. It's not that I'm not appreciative, but it's just something about the weight of someone sitting next to me or hugging me and just saying, like, we're going to get through this a text message to me doesn't hold as much weight. And I know there are some family members who might, I'm in Maryland, so I have friends in California, they may not be able to get to me, et cetera. And while I am grateful, it's just something about that, that leaning in that Dr. Plummer that is so life-changing. And I feel like that has saved me multiple times since my suicide attempt, because I have not attempted since 2016. But I think a big part of that is because because of the lean in that Dr. Plummer is speaking about. Do you want to add anything to that, Dr. Plummer, before I go? Um, yes, I do, actually, because we have a question in the question and answer from George, where he asked more specifically about the safety plan. What I'm saying, George, and, and also uh, being reemphasized by Takia is that the safety plan is generally co-created by the person with the ideation and an external person. So that external person could be a parent, it could be a therapist, it could be a, a friend, it could be a teacher. If it is going to be used, we prefer it to be done with a therapist, right? Because sometimes friends, family members, non-experts will miss key points. So if a safety plan is used, 
it will be used between generally that person with the ideation and a mental health professional. However, the safety plans are not always effective. Instead, what is effective is like Takiya is saying, pay attention to how that person needs you to show up and show up in that way. What I know from our research and what I know from lived experiences is that it's usually in the form of physical touch because the physical touch changes the chemistry within your body and it changes your mind. It changes your digestive tract, which is also associated with your dopamine and your serotonin that's in your gut. So you want to sit and you want to have a lot of physical touch, no less than 20 seconds each time you touch, right? You also want to be able to fall into whatever that person needs. If they're a person that needs affirmation, then affirmation, not saying, girl, you're going to be okay, because that's not affirmation, right? It's more of, I understand what you need. I understand what you're saying. I'm here with you. I got you. We're going to do this together. It's like when you run in a race, they're exhausted because they, they fall down flat, face on the earth because they're exhausted. You are that person that stands them up and you carry them until they have the strength to carry themselves. It doesn't mean that you stand over and you say, you gonna get up, you got this. It doesn't mean stand up and meet me where I am. It means you get up in there and you hold them and you walk with them until they are regaining the strength to walk by themselves. That is what I mean. I hope that thank answered you. your question, George. And thank you for asking it as well. Thank you, Dr. Plummer. Um, Jordan, I am going to give us opportunity to shine some light on peer support specialists. Um, so um, I am uh, trained or credentialed through the state of Maryland uh, Behavioral Health um, and Addictions Peer Certification Board. Um, to um, do peer support. And I have worked at behavioral health um, organizations where we are not clinical professionals, so we're not diagnosing, but we are trained, um, have taken evidence-based training to identify signs and symptoms of mental health challenges, to listen non-judgmentally, to mentor, to coach, uh, similar to maybe what some might consider a sponsor for individuals with um who struggle with addiction um so I, I every state is different but i know for maryland we do have to take a test get supervision um take a whole bunch of evidence-based trainings and continue to keep our ceus up to date and so for me i have found that i said that now i'm like i'm always pushing for therapy and i love my therapist but i often talk about the reason why I decided to pursue the peer support credential was because I wanted that for myself. Um, a lot of times, like, well, Dr. Plum is being very transparent here in her um, her lived experience. But typically, when you're meeting, when you meet with a therapist, um, it's against their code of ethics to share certain things um, during that session. Um, and so, with peer support specialists, the difference is. You can have your therapist where you can get something as far as clinical treatment, but with peer support specialists, we can share our lived experience to assist you in your recovery. So I've helped individuals develop a RAP plan, which is wellness recovery action plan, um, have helped link them to um, linkages to, um, to community resources. I've sit on the treatment team where a person had a therapist, a psychiatrist, and I will help advocate for them 
Um, I would go toe to toe with the psychiatrist. Like, uh, I don't think that's what they need right now. Um, but it's because I wish I had that. A lot of times people may not feel comfortable going to see a therapist at first, but if they, if they're coming into a peer support group or they're meeting with a peer um, specialist, they'll be like, wow, I remember when I was leading a support group and I had shared that, you know, I was hospitalized for a suicide attempt. Um, I was told, um, that's another webinar, but I was, um, a you know, a member of the black church and I was told I need to pray and speak in tongues and that depression gonna go away. And I just couldn't do it no more. And I remember after the session, one of the peers said to me, she said, you know, Taki, I'm so glad you shared that because now I feel like seeing you up here leading a group and get it to a point where you attempted and you're still here. I have hope that I can actually make it through because I also want to know, like, how did you do it? Like, I, I don't see, she just got out of the hospital two days ago for attempted suicide. And she's like, oh my gosh, how seeing you shows me that it's possible. And so that speaks to the value of um, peer support. Um, and so Jordan is also has also done peer work. She's done it on the addiction side and I've done it more on the behavioral health side, but I want Jordan to have a, um, a few moments to talk about um, her work in peer support. Yeah, so I guess for anyone listening who doesn't know what a peer support specialist is, we're people with lived experience with either a mental health disorder, substance use, or both. And we take our experiences in recovery to help others who are still in the midst of their struggle. So as Takiya mentioned, um, I actually did peer work on the substance use side, even though I have no lived experience with substance use. Um, there's a reason that they both kind of fall under the behavioral health umbrella. I know um, for the most part, the majority of people that I've worked with that use substances also had a co-occurring mental health disorder. So a lot of times substance use is, you know, for the purpose of, I guess, alleviating some of those symptoms. So someone who is suffering from schizophrenia and they use something in hopes that it will help with, you know, audio and visual hallucinations, things like that. But I worked in an inpatient center for substance use. And I also worked in the emergency room for substance use. And I would help people get connected with treatment. Um, anyone who was interested in inpatient, outpatient, intensive outpatient programs. Um, some people wanted help like getting reconnected with a doctor and I would sit there and help them schedule appointments to um, get connected to resources in the community. Um, it's very different like Takiya said because I would imagine for substance use, it's a lot different for the doctor to come in and say, hey, like your liver enzymes are off this alcohol use is going to kill you versus someone coming in with lived experience and saying, hey, you know what? I've been in that hospital bed too. And I, um, I was able to do X, Y, and Z to overcome that. Is there something that I can do to assist you if you're willing to make changes to your behavior? Because maybe they're not ready to go into treatment. Maybe it could be something as simple as harm reduction. So for example, 
alcohol in particular, I would have people who would come to the emergency room and they were in bad shape. Let's say they drank like, I don't know, a 12 pack of beer a day. Could you try lowering it down to instead of 12, maybe 10 a day? Yes, they're still going to use alcohol, but it's still harm reduction and getting them closer to the goal of reducing their alcohol usage if that's something that they're interested in doing. So um, we definitely need more peers. If anyone's interested in becoming a peer support specialist, you have lived experience with a mental health disorder or substance use, you could definitely um, check out your state. As Takia mentioned, Maryland has their own certifying board, but if you Google your state and peer support, I'm sure they have a similar program where you can get um, the credential for it. I know DC has it. I'm pretty sure Virginia has it. Mm-hmm. I know Delaware has it. So lots of states have a similar program and we need more people. We're actually starting to make waves now. Again, we're in primary care doctor offices now. I think Maryland pretty much has a peer in all of their emergency rooms. We're starting to be in um, prenatal care offices, residential centers, et cetera. So again, we don't offer any clinical services. We are not there to, that is the job of doctors and nurses and those wonderful people to provide that level of care. But we're someone who's really in their corner, um, advocating for patients, helping patients do their activities of daily living, especially if you're in an inpatient center or residential center. We're just there to support them. And it makes a huge difference because I wish I would have had a peer when I was going through a mental health struggle. That probably would have saved me some heartache. So yeah, Yeah. if you're interested in being a peer, definitely check it out. It's very rewarding. Yes. Dr. Plummer has her hand up yet. I just wanted to say to the audience, um, Jordan, I really appreciate that you mentioned that harm reduction because a lot of people think that everything should stop cold turkey, right? Um, But that's not actually uh, sustainable for habit and lifestyle changes. Partially because habits are formed over time. And uh, that person who was drinking 12 beers a day, they didn't start one day by saying, I'm drinking 12 beers a day. It started by two beers and then it went to three beers and then it went to four beers. And so with that same habit forming and habit unforming, we have to slowly reduce them back, partially because in these kinds of situations, especially when it comes to mental health, people can do something for our goal is to have 21 to 30 incidents of success before we call it a habit or a lifestyle change. It's the first seven days are usually, or the first seven incidents are usually based off of motivation. People are like, I'm going to do this. Think about it in any form of life, right? A workout. I could do this for seven days. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. From, from eight to 15, it's about reinforcements. You need somebody helping you, encouraging you, right? Your motivation, which is an emotion, has declined. It has decreased. So you don't have any motivation anymore. You need somebody to hold your hand, right? And then after you get that reinforcement for about seven to 10 days, 
or seven to 10 incidents, then you're able to generally go into a place of sustainability where you both have now a re-emerged re motivation. So the feeling is there. And then you have a bit more discipline. And then you also have that reinforcement. So the reason that people have trouble keeping up with a lifestyle change or a habit change, or in this situation, a reduction of harm is because after the motivation, they don't have the reinforcement. They don't have people that are supporting them in that way. That comes to anything related to mental health, anything, right? So we have to be careful not to think that, well, this person hasn't had an ideation in seven weeks, so they're okay. No, they now they need you to be checking in on them the same amount or a little less, if you will, but it still takes time. So while you brought that up around alcohol, I want people to understand that even if a person hasn't had, like Takiya mentioned before, has not necessarily had an active has not had a suicide attempt, the, the thoughts still come back, right? So you need to still be able to have somebody in your corner that's going to continue to help with that habit forming, that lifestyle change, and of course, that mental health aspect as well. Go ahead, Jordan. Yes, I am so glad you mentioned that. So a big part of peer support is actually follow-up. So if I'm helping you to make an appointment, uh, whether it be for like inpatient, outpatient, I'm going to call you a couple of days before your appointment and remind you like, hey, remember you got that appointment coming up? This is Jordan from the hospital. The day after your appointment, I'm going to give you a call. Hey, how did that appointment go? Oh, you missed it? That's okay. Do you want to reschedule? I can help you do that, et cetera, et cetera. What would you like for me to do that would be helpful for you? So that's a huge part of peer support because again, it is a lot of, um, as Dr. Plummer said, reinforcing the change that they want to see, having those conversations, like those motivational interviews to remind them of why they want to change, keeping those things in mind, it's it's huge. So thank you for bringing it up, Dr. Plummer. Look at this. You know, it's always great. As peer support specialists, when we get the stamp of approval from a clinician, let me tell you, me and Jordan be like, we got this one locked, we doing it. So we are all, so many therapists and clinicians in general have gave black people die by suicide to their check off. So we are very, very um, grateful. Um, and so I'm glad that you brought that up, Jordan, as well as when Dr. Palmer was speaking, it made me think about, I'll tell y'all to just Google it because we, you know, we getting down to the wire with time, but please look up the stages of change. Um, that will really, really, really help you to really, when you are working with a family member, to kind of go into that to see like what stage of change uh, they are in, because I'm not going to get into it, but maybe we could just have a follow-up webinar, or I'll give Dr. Plummer a good two minutes to go through the stages of change, and then we'll answer questions after that, because I do think it's um, really helpful when you're talking about mental health or substance use. I don't know if I could do it in two minutes and I'm over here texting, <laughs> I'm over here texting uh, Jura Lee like this COVID tried to kick my behind child. She like, it's okay, Dr. Plummer, you got it. Give me a few more minutes. Um, two, two minutes might not be enough, but how about this? I'll commit to doing another webinar with you guys around the stages of change. Um, and what that looks like in mental health. And I, I know it's extra important because my cousin and my best friend are on the webinar right now and they texted me like, girl, yeah, you need to talk about that. So <laughs> I, know, I know there's people out there, even those in my old close community 
that uh, want to talk about it too. So just hit me up. Let me know what we're going to talk about it and we can spend more time with that. And I won't be sick at that point. So I could, I could get up on okay. it. <laughs> yes, that that is great. Thank you so much. But y'all just do a quick Google search um, and then we will definitely schedule an, another webinar because it's super important um, when trying to uh, be of a support to, um, to people because ultimately it's very hard to change a habit. You know, you want someone stop using those drugs or just stop doing this. It's not that easy because it is, if it is, uh, we wouldn't need clinicians because everybody could just stop doing it, you know? So it has not just to mental health or substance use, but just behaviors in general. Um, you know, as Dr. Plummer mentioned, like these habits are formed over time. Um, and so there's a reason why we you know, why we do certain things and why we think a certain way. And so that's where therapy comes into. So, um, yeah, so we'll definitely have a follow-up on the stages of change. Geraldine, do we have any questions directly to you or in the chat? Not yet. Um, I have not received any questions yet. I think we've done a nice job of answering um, as we've gone along. The, oh, I'm sorry, I was going to ask, well, while people are because we got like a few minutes if they, you could pop the link for the survey so you yeah. all can fill out this please survey it's not that many questions um just so we can know how we did how we can improve it what you would like to see um that will be super beneficial um i just want to thank the amazing dr plummer dr Rosalind dyson for just supporting us um dr Rosalind has she found us on Instagram, and let me tell y'all, she's been rocking with us since since day one. So, um, and I stopped uh, Dr. Plummer. Um, so that's how I found her after my therapist sent the, the link. And I'm always referring people to Onyx. So um, I just want to let you know that I'm super thankful for your time. And I don't want to be like, oh, you got it, girl, because you know you got COVID. But I do appreciate the, that you, you know, you still engage you still you still bought the noise and so i'm very grateful and i just i look forward to continuing our partnership because i was telling jordan that you have such a lovely um spirit and i'm very excited to continue this relationship yes i will um piggyback off Tia. i am so grateful for all of you for participating on the panel dr plummer dr dyson Jira Lee, thank you for holding down the technology. <laughs> Our wonderful secretary, to everyone who tuned in, thank you so much for your time. I really hope you all were able to take something away from this. Kia and I are really passionate about it because it is our lived experience. And we dream of a world where there's no suicide. We, we dream of that. And I just want to say to um, Dr. Thyssen, my heart goes out to you as you were talking about your baby. Oh man, I could just, I just saw the picture of his face in my head and I'm a crier, so I won't talk too long. I don't want to cry, but um, my heart definitely goes out to you today. I thank each and every one of y'all. I'm very, um, I'm very particular when it comes to mental health, so much so that I was on a panel yesterday and I walked off. 
because when we're talking about mental health, I need us to be serious. And it's it's not a trend. It's not little catchy cliches. My son is gone and he's gone forever. So when we talk about change, we want real change. When Dr. Plummer brought, brought up systems, that's something that people want to shy away from. But we got to get into conversations like that because that's the only way that we're going to help these babies to help people that look like us. That's the only way. So you got to pardon me because I start talking hard when I when I start talking about something that really matters to me. So let me go ahead and, and tone it down because this is my baby's angelversary. So I don't know if y'all know what that means, but my baby is, um he's an angel right now because there were certain systems in place that didn't allow him to express himself. And we can't keep fighting systems. So Dr. Plummer, thank you for bringing that up. And we got to continue conversations like that. That's right, sis. I got you. Thank you. And and um, thank you. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I agree with everyone. We 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 gotta do better, right? And and we can do better. We could absolutely make a change. You know, we don't know how many people have thought about ideations, but because they had an opportunity to talk to us, they didn't act upon it, right? Like we don't, we don't know, right? We don't. There's no data that really gives us that information, but we do know that we can decrease these numbers, right? We can decrease these numbers. Um, so thank you again um, for having me here. Like I said, the conversation is personal. It's personal for me also with my own lived experiences. It's personal with me in, in grief. I, um, I don't want to overextend myself, but I would love to have more conversations around what grief looks like. Um, and what grief looks like when it comes to ideations. Um, because like like Dr. Rosalind said a little bit ago, like you never really know when that grief is going to hit. Today is the baby's angel anniversary, but it was yesterday that it hit hard, right? Like, and so if you plan for today, then, then you, get, you get hit hard the day before and you don't know what to do, right? So we should talk about what those stages of grief look like and the fact that they're not ladder steps right like you don't go mm -hmm. from one to the next to the mm -hmm. next they you they all happen and they it's unpredictable and and you could do your best to protect yourself from certain elements because you understand the triggers but you also have to be prepared in the event that you get sucker punched and and you weren't prepared for it right because again that's where those moments of hopelessness come in and, and that's where where some of our actions become a bit more impulsive um, and we start to do things that we never thought that we would do, the thoughts we never even considered or contemplated before. So I am really appreciated, uh, appreciative of both you, Takia and Jordan, for taking your lived experiences and choosing to help others. And the same for you, Dr. Rosalind, that I'm a mom, so I get it, right? Like, I get it. I thank you guys. I thank you. Jordan, Jordan, you ain't gonna have me up in here. You know what? I might cry. You know what? Because black <laughs> people deserve to cry. Okay? Because we need to stop pretending like we don't want to cry. Okay? So I might cry. I might cry. All right? And thank you, Jerry. I, I see you too, sis. I'm sorry. I was talking. <laughs> Thanks Jerry for holding is, this down. <laughs> yeah, Jerry is great. She, she is she she is amazing. Um, she's been super supportive of everything that I've done since we met earlier this year. So um, um, I'm so grateful and thank you all. I cannot express this enough. The fact that you all came here to sit in on this webinar means so much um, to all of us. 
Um, but specifically, I'm going to speak to me and Jordan because this is our baby. And we, me and Jordan don't have kids. So this is our baby. We spend a lot of time on Black people die by suicide. Texting Jordan at 2 o'clock in the morning about stuff that needs to be done. I'm working on it, though. Um, but I'm so grateful. Like, I just, I'm fighting back tears. And yes, it's okay to cry. But when you have, um, as Dr. Tomino, as the founder of, of a business, when you have a vision, uh, uh, Rosalindo as well, too, and you take something and you see it, like, come to fruition, it's words that I can't even express um, to think, to to think how I took something that was so dark to the point where I didn't want to be here and was able to create something like this. So the fact that you all are here and the fact that I have been able to connect with amazing people like Gerald Lee and uh, Rosalind and Dr. Plummer and through um, Jordan and I's friendship, we were able to do this. So thank you all so much. And we're very appreciative of your support. Can I get one more quick plug? Sure. Y'all that are listening, make sure y'all sponsor and donate to this company, okay? The work that they're doing is time, is energy, is resources. And I don't know if you guys have a donate plug, but I'm gonna be donating. So people that are listening, make sure that you donate and you support this conversation, right? Because people are doing this out the kindness of their heart, but it also takes resources, right? So donate, support, all the great things. Yes, thank you for saying that. I'm gonna put it in the chat. Um, Lee, can you put it in there? Um, yes, thank you. Your donations are tax deductible. We will say that because we are a 501c3. So we are very appreciative of any donations. No amount is too small. We're very grateful. Um, Jordan and I are, it is a labor of love and we are applying to grants so we can get more funding to continue to do things like this. But Jordan and I um, invest a lot of time and our own finances into the organization. So um, we're very appreciative. But if no one else has any questions, I'm trying to look in the Q&A. Um, we just ask that y'all also before y'all go, um, please make sure y'all did that survey for us so we can see how we can improve. And we will definitely have a follow-up in reference to um, the stages of change. Um, and then probably a part th three with grief because Dr. Plummer just out here, okay? Oh, thank you, Rosalind, um, for including and also support Trey Thyssen Have a Heart Foundation as well. And they focus on um, suicide prevention as well as bullying. Um, so, um, and Dr. Thyssen is based in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And Jordan and I have on our calendar to get, we, we went to New Orleans, but we know we get into Baton Rouge next, next year for the event. Cause Dr. Did, you, did your event happen already or is it coming up? No, it was Sunday. We have, oh, so okay. every year we do a um, bullying and suicide awareness runway show because I do not like balloon releases. It just, when I see that balloon fly up in the air, it reminds me of how quickly we lost um, Trey. So I don't like them. Plus Trey was, he's a nature guy. So he didn't like that kind of stuff anyway. He loved the environment. So um, he was a model. So we just used a platform that we had to bring awareness. So come on, watch these kids walk down that runway and get, the, get these mental health moments as well. So yeah, it was, and it was beautiful. Thank you. Um, I'm glad. So please support both of our wonderful organizations and then um, go to thera therapy, um, honest therapy group, which are insurance information and um, <laughs> go see one of Dr. Plummer's clinicians.
Yeah, you don't have to do this by yourself. There are some fantastic Black clinicians out here who would love to help you get through what you're going through. Absolutely. And then we also did put in the chat, lastly, it is 7 o'clock. We are hosting peer support groups. Um, our peer support group is called Black and Suicidal. Um, and it is a place for individuals who are Black, who struggle with suicidal ideation, or if they just have trouble, uh, challenges with their mental health. But Jordan and I created this support group because we want to just make sure that Black people have uh, safe spaces to talk about those thoughts. Um, and ultimately, um, what Jordan and I have been to each other, we want to extend that to other people. We held our first group last month and it was successful and they, people asked if we can have it again. Um, so we'll be hosting one support group every month until the end of the year. Um, and we'll be tackling uh, holiday stress. We'll be talking about self-care, um, setting boundaries during the holiday. And one of our port members is a clinician, so it'll be co-facilitated. She'll be there as a backup. So if someone has a heightened emotional reaction, we'll put them in a breakout room to talk to the clinician. But ultimately, the group is led by me and Jordan. Um, and so Geraldine did put that in the chat. But we'll also send that information out to you all as well as the recording of the webinar. But thank you all so much. Um, and that concludes our webinar. We hope that you got something from it.